Okay, Maxwell, whenever you're ready. Activities. Making a read book of Exodus chapters 13 through 30. Making the guards of the with blue, purple, and red wool, they had made the missing garments which the priests were to wear when they served in the holy place. They made the priestly garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the effort of fine linen, blue, blue, purple, and red wool, and gold thread. They hammered out sheets of gold and cut them into thin strips, worked into the fine linen and into the blue, purple, and red wool. They had made two shoulder straps for the ephod and attached them to its side sides so it could be fastened. The finely woven belt made of the same materials was attached to the ephod so as to form one piece with it as the Lord had commanded Moses. Prepared the, uh, they prepared the cornelians and mounted them in gold settings. They were skillfully graved with the names of the twelve sons of Jacob. They put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod to represent the twelve tribes of Israel, just as the Lord Moses had commanded Moses, making the breastpiece. They made the breastpiece of the same materials as the ephod and with similar embroidery. It was square and folded double, nine inches long and nine inches wide. They mounted four rows of precious stone on it. In the first row, they had mounted a ruby, a topaz, and a garment. garnet. In the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. In the third row, a turquoise, an agate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row, a barrel, a carnelian, and a jasper. They were mounted in gold settings. Well, these were mounted in gold settings. Each of the twelve stones had engraved on it the names of one of the sons of Jacob in order to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. For the breastpiece, they had made chains of pure gold twisted like cords. They had made two gold settings and two gold rings and attached the two rings to, to the upper corners of the breastpiece. They fastened the two gold cords to the two rings and fastened the other two ends of the cords to the two settings and in this way attached them in front of the shoulder straps of the ephod. They made two rings of gold and attached them to the lower corners of the breastpiece on the inside edge next to the ephod. They made two more gold rings and attached them into the lower part of the front and of the two shoulder straps of the ephod, near the seam and above the finely woven belt. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, they tied the rings of the breastpiece to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord, so that the breastpiece rested above the belt and did not come loose. Making of the other priestly garments. The robe that goes under the ephod was made entirely of blue wool. The whole for the head was reinforced with a woman binding to keep it from tearing. All around its lower hem they put pomegranates, fine linen, and of blue, purple, and red wool, alternating with bells of pure gold, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the shirts of for Aaron and his sons, and the turban, the caps, the linen, the shorts, the linen shorts, and the sash of fine linen, and 
of purple, blue, and red wool, decorated with embroidery as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the ornaments, the sacred sign of dedication out of pure gold, and they engraved on it, dedicated to the Lord. They tied it to the front of the turban with a blue cord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The completion of the work. All the work on the tent of the Lord's presence was finally completed. The Israelites made everything just as the Lord had commanded Moses. They brought to Moses the tents and all its equipments, its hooks, its frames, its crossbars, its posts, and its bases. The covering of ram skin dyed red, the covering of fine, fine leather, the curtain, the covenant box containing the stone tablets, its bowls, and its lid, the table and all its equipment, and the bread offered to God, the lampstand of pure gold, its lamps, all its equipment, and all the oil for the lamps, the, old, the gold altar, the anointing oil, the sweet-smelling incense, the curtain for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar with its bronze grating, its poles, and all its equipment, the wash basin and its base, the curtains for the enclosure and its posts and bases, the curtain for the entrance of the enclosure and its ropes, the tent pegs, all the equipments to be used in the tent, and the magnificent garments the priests were to wear in the holy place, the sacred clothes for Aaron, the priest, and for his sons. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses examined everything and saw that they had made it all just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. Setting up and dedicating the tent of the Lord's presence. The Lord said to Moses, on the first day of the first month, set up the tent of the Lord's presence, place it in the covenant box containing the Ten Commandments, put the curtain in front of it, bring in the table and place the equipment on it. Also bring in the lampstand and set up the lamps on it. Put the gold altar for burning incense in front of the covenant box and hang the curtain at the entrance of the tent. Put in front of the tent the altar for burned, burning offerings. Put the wash basin between the tent and the, the altar and fill it with water. Put up the surrounding enclosure and hang the curtain at its entrance. Now dedicate the tent and all its equipment by anointing it with the sacred oil and it will be holy. Next, dedicate the altar and all of its equipment by anointing it, and it will be completely holy. Also, dedicate the wash basin and its base in the same way. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent, and have them take a ritual bath. Dress Aaron in the priestly garments, anoint him, and in this way consecrate him, so that he can serve me as a priest. Bring his sons and put the shirts on him. Then anoint them, just as you anointed their father, so that they can serve me as priests. This anointing will make them priests for all time to come. Moses did everything just as the Lord had commanded. So on the first day of the first month of the second year, after he had left Egypt, the tent of the Lord's presence was set up. Moses put down its bases, set up its frames, attached its crossbars, and put up its posts. He spread out the covering over the tent and put the outer covering over it, just as the Lord had commanded. He, then he took the two stone tablets and put them in the covenant box. He put the poles in the rings of the box and put the lid on it. Then he put the box in the tent and hung up the curtain. In this way, he screened off the covenant box, just as the Lord had commanded. He put the, the table in the tent on the north side outside the curtain and placed on it 
the bread offered to the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded. He put the lampstand and the tent on the south side, opposite the table, and there in the Lord's presence he lit the lamps, just as the Lord had commanded. He put the gold altar in a tent in front of the curtain and burned the sweet-smelling incense just as the Lord had commanded. He hung the curtain at the, the entrance of the tent, and there in front of the curtain he placed the altar for burning offerings. On it he sacrificed the burnt offering and grain offering, just as the Lord had commanded. He put the wash basin between the tent and the altar and filled it with water. Moses, Aaron, and his sons washed their hands and their feet there. Whenever they went into the tent or the altar, just as the Lord had commanded, Moses set up the enclosure around the tent and the altar and hung the certain the curtain at the entrance of the enclosure. So he finished all the work. Cloud over the tent of the Lord's presence. Then the cloud covering the tent and, and the dazzling light of the Lord's presence filled it. Because of this, Moses could not go in the tent. The Israelites moved their camp to another place only when the cloud lifted from the tent. As long as the cloud, stay there, cloud stayed there, they did not move their camp. During all their wanderings, they could, not, they could see the cloud of the Lord's presence over the tents during the day and fire, and fire burning above it during the night. Thank you, Maxwell, so much for reading that and reading so much of Exodus and closing this out. So, now we've seen in chapter 39 that all this work is finished, right? And going in 40, Moses erects the tabernacle and the cloud of God's glory comes down to cover it. And what's really interesting, earlier I had pointed out, um, we had saw that the instructions for making the tabernacle parallel certain features of the event at Mount Sinai, right? So we saw that parallel. And so similarly, similarly, modern scholars have actually pointed out that the narrative of the construction of the tabernacle contains several remarkable parallels with the account of the creation of the world in the book of Genesis, right? And you see this. So there's kind of some parallels from uh, the sixth and seventh days in the Hexameron, which are the six days of creation, with the account of Moses' completion of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. And we see this, um, the creation of the world. We see, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Chapter 1 of Genesis. In the building of the tabernacle, we see, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. Exodus chapter 39, as we just read. Genesis 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Exodus 39, thus all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was finished. Again in chapter 2 of Genesis, God finished his work, which he had, had done. In Exodus 40, so Moses finished the work. The next verse, this was verse 3 now of Genesis chapter 2. So God blessed the seventh day. In Exodus 39, we saw he said, and Jesus blessed, <laughs> and Moses blessed them. Sorry. So really from this point of view, it seems clear um, that for the 
author of Genesis and Exodus, the Tabernacle of Moses is not only a quote-unquote new Sinai, as we saw, right, but also a kind of new Eden for Israel, a new Adam. So not only does the account of the construction of the tabernacle echo the days of the Hexamerion, the six days of creation, but even its decorations contain echoes of the Garden of Eden. So the, these precious metals, right, especially gold and stones, uh, particularly onyx, right? These flowering fruit and trees, um, plentiful water, and cherubim, very important. You see, these same motifs will also be observed later in the Jerusalem temple. Very interesting, all these parallels. Um, and with that, we are finished with Exodus. So if we have any questions, we'll move on to Psalm 3. So, Jimena, whenever you're ready, uh, Psalm 3. Pause on 3. Trust in God under advisement. A pause of David when he fled from his son as... Absalom. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are arising against me. Many are saying to me, There is no hope for you in God. But you, O Lord, are the shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head up, lifts up my head. I cry out to the Lord as he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake up, for the Lord sustains me. I am not afraid of tens of thousands of people who have themselves against me all around. Rise up, O Lord, deliver me, O Lord. O my, deliver me, O my God. For my strike will my for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You will break the teeth of the wicked. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. May you, may your blessings be on your people. Thank you, Hamana. So here we have Psalm 3, right? And this is a little bit from the footnote. So this is an individual lament complaining of enemies who deny that God will come to the rescue. And despite such taunts, the psalmist hopes for God's protection even in sleep. And the psalm prays for an end to the enemy's powers to speak maliciously. And it closed peacefully with an expression of trust. Right. So, again, a little bit of understanding the Psalms, as we've mentioned in the past couple of days. Again, we see these praises and laments and petition. Right. And the book of Psalms include all of these and many other kinds of prayer made actually by individuals and small groups and other Jewish, small and or whole um, other Jewish nation. Right. And yet... Throughout the Psalms, there is one constant. Human experience is viewed through the eyes of faith. Right, and we see this in Psalm 3. So it reflects the human experience of being threatened by others. So, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, we see this. The Psalm of David, I mean, verse 1, verse 2. The Psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom. Right, how many are my foes, Lord? How many rise against me? Is this was his experience of him fleeing from his son, right? And the writer of the psalm, rather than losing all hope, calls God to the rescue. Verse 7 says, I do not fear 
than thousands of people arrayed against me on every side. In the verse before that, verse 6, we saw it says, I lay down and fall asleep. That will wake up, for the Lord sustains me. For the Lord sustains me. Right, so calling God to the rescue and trusting Him. And in a similar way, all the Psalms teach us that every human experience can also be a faith experience, right? And we see this, I mean, um, I'm sure we've all experienced um, these types of heartbreaks, these um, experiences that you're not very fond, right? Um, but all taught us to lean into the Lord, um, learn to trust in Him more. And we see this throughout the Psalms. In pointing out um, what I had um, kind of mentioned yesterday, that Psalm, Psalm 2, they're the Psalms of happiness, right? And today we have the Psalm of lament. So I was saying that Psalm, Psalm 2 contradict what we're going to see in the rest of um, here, right? In Psalm 3. So any questions before... We move on. We are finishing. I mean, I mean we're starting Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, Luke one. We have here a, a little seminary, right? So we see um that. Really, women and children in the first century society had a little status. They were supposed to be unseen and unnoticed, right? But Luke, he really breaks this practice by beginning his gospel with two women, Mary, Mother Mary, of course, and um, St. Elizabeth, her cousin, and the birth of their sons, of course, Jesus and John the Baptist. So another example, actually, is many Jewish leaders um, ignoring outcasts and rejecting outsiders. But we know that Jesus, we see this, that Jesus does the opposite. He serves the poor and challenges his disciples to love their enemies. He even praises the faith of a Roman centurion. And even as Jesus is dying on the cross, we know he teaches compassion and forgiveness and repentance um, in paradise. Luke was really challenging everyone First, um, chapter one, we have the prologue. Since many have undertaken the compile to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the world have handed them down to us, I too have decided, after investigating everything accurately anew, to write it down in orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. So, again, this is um, the prologue, right? The prologue of Luke's Gospel. And really, a, a number of scholars have studied this very carefully. And this is one of the best indicators in all four Gospels that the genre of the Gospels, the kind of books that they were, the kind of books that they thought they were writing, were historical biographies. Right? And it was very customary in ancient Greco-Roman world for historians to begin their accounts of history with a prologue, a kind of preface. 
right, in which the author addresses the audience and explains to them what he's going to be doing, why he's doing it. And also, he'll tend to emphasize where he's getting his evidence and the reliability of the account that he's about to give. And that's exactly what Luke here does in this historical prologue to his gospel. Right? In it, he makes a few key points um, that are really worth noting here. First, let's notice that Luke is very clear that there are already some written gospels in circulation. He says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that Jesus has done during his life. So really, most scholars assume that Luke here is referring, at least he's referring to Mark. Right? And a number of others agree that he's referring to Mark and Matthew because those two gospels, a case can be made anyway, that Luke is actually utilizing them both as sources. So although there's some debate about whether he's using uh, Matthew or not, everyone, everyone agrees that he is actually using Mark as a source. Now, that's just two, and he says many, right? So we don't exactly know um, what he's referring to there about previous accounts of the life of Jesus, but he's going to be drawing on multiple sources in the composition of his gospel. The second thing, Luke makes very clear that his material in the gospel is based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. Right? And this is very crucial. Some scholars in the 20th century said that the gospels were folklore, that they were myths, that they were folktales, right? And just traditions told by people from one person to another. Right? Christians passing on stories about Jesus without any control or organized witness to his life. Of course, well, this is false, right? Luke makes very clear that he wants us to know that his account is based on the testimony of eyewitnesses, atopia in Greek, right? It is where we got the word autopsy from. Autos means self, optic is to look. And so when someone does an autopsy, a doctor looks for himself at a body in order to examine the causes of death. So the word and the Greek word autotop, autote, literally means people who saw for themselves what Jesus did and what he said. Now, Luke would never emphasize that his gospel was based on eyewitness testimony if he was just writing a fairy tale, right? Or a folk legend or myth, or even a treatise of theology. I mean, Paul writes theological letters and he never says, well, this is an idea based on eyewitness and that idea is based on that eyewitness, right? He will say that about historical events, but theology is reflection on events. Right? So Luke's not writing a book of theology, even though it is theological, of course. He's writing a gospel. He's writing a biography of Jesus. He's writing a historical account rooted in eyewitness testimony that to things that Jesus really did and things that Jesus really said. Then that concern for accuracy is reflected in the next point when he says, I wanted to give you an orderly account. Now here, the English translation orderly doesn't quite capture the Greek. The Greek word here is akribos, which literally means accurate, faithful to the event. Right. So he's stressing here that he's giving his reader an account, an accurate account based 
on eyewitness testimony. And here, um, the reason he's having to stress that is because he himself was not an eyewitness to Jesus. He's a second or third generation Christian. So by contrast, Ma- by contrast, Matthew's gospel, which is attributed to an eyewitness, never has to say it's based on eyewitness testimony because the title alone tells us that it's the testimony of one of the 12 apostles who was an eyewitness to Jesus. So there's a little bit of contrast there, for example, between Matthew and Luke, right? And one more point in this prologue, Luke mentions Theophilus, the addressee of the gospel. Right, now, who is this Theophilus? The name Theophilus literally means friend of God. We know that Theos means God, and Philos means friend, so friend of God. And some people have said that all that means is that it's a symbolic recipient. Everyone's a friend of God, right? So Luke's writing for everyone. But that's probably unlikely because all ancient names had meanings, right? So it wasn't like today where just some people's names just don't have any meaning whatsoever. They were usually compound words that had certain meaning, like Jesus means the Lord saves, right? In this case, Theophilus is probably the name of an actual person. We don't know who he is, though. And the identity of Luke's addressee remains a mystery. See, that all we can really know from this is that he was some person of high stature because Luke calls him the most excellent Theophilus, Christate in the Greek, which is a title that you would use for royalty or governor or some figure who holds an office of some prestige or esteem. And Luke addresses him in that way. Maybe he was the patron who paid for the book. In ancient times, as well as we know here in modern times too, writers need money to get time to write, so people would frequently subsidize their writing through a gift of financial assistance and then the author would compose the book and dedicate it to the person who had assisted him financially um, in parchment or in ink or also just time to compose a massive work as a gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are right two of the longest books in the New Testament. And finally we notice that Luke insists that he's writing for Theophilus so that Theophilus can know the truth concerning the things of which he had been informed. And now again, the English here is a little misleading because a normal Greek word, aletheus, aletheus for true or aletheia, isn't used here. Here, Luke uses the word asphalia, right, which actually means something more like certainty. He wants Theophilus to be certain about the things about which he had been informed name about Jesus of Nazareth, of his life, his death, his resurrection. It's really interesting there that when Luke uses the word inform, the last word about which you have been informed, the Greek here is catechigo, which we get the English word catechesis, right? And literally means to sound in the ears, like echo in the ears of someone. So when we catechize, we inform them about the truth of the faith, right? And we just don't make stuff up, right? We echo what the church has said. We echo what the apostles have said. At least that's what we're supposed to do when we catechize, right? So when we actually translate this, that you may know 
the certainty of the things which you have been catechized. So this is kind of interesting, right? A different translation. And it gives a kind of different connotation. But that's what Luke is doing here. In any case, it's absolutely clear that Luke sees himself as a Greco-Roman historian. Right? He's writing a historical biography of Jesus. And he wants his reader to know that it's an accurate eyewitness testimony based, truthful, that it can give his reader certainty, right, that he's gonna be saying about what happened, actually happened, right? So that's um the prologue, the beginning of gospel. So we continue to the infancy narrative. And yeah, I'll just finish out reading the rest of the gospel. <clears throat> the infancy narrative. Announcement of the birth of John. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the priestly division of Abijah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in the eyes of God, observing all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both advanced in years. Once he was serving as a priest in his divisions turned before God, according to the practice of the priestly service, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to burn incense. Then, when the whole assembly of the people were praying outside at the hour of the incense offering, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled by what he saw, and fear came upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall name him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn away many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the heart of father of fathers toward children and disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to prepare people fit for the Lord. Then Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him in reply, I am Gabriel, who stand before God. I was sent to speak to you and announce to you the good news. But now you will have be but now you'll be speechless and able to talk until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, who were amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to him, speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was gesturing to them, but remained mute. Then, when his days of ministry were complete, he went home. After this time, his, Elizabeth, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she went into seclusion for months, saying, So has the Lord done for me at a time when he has seen fit to take away my disgrace before others. Announcement of the Birth of Jesus 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming to her, he said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at what was said, and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall, you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. But Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Because I how can this be, since I have no relations with a man? And the angel said to her in reply, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her, who had been called barren. For nothing will be impossible for God. Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Um, one thing I want to note, as like, Trey just said, favored one. Uh, translation, um, it varies, but of course it's um, hell Mary, right? We know that. So, um, continuing. Mary visits Elizabeth. During those days, Mary sets out and traveled to the hill country in haste to the town of, Ju of Judah, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. With Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the infant leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, cried out in a loud voice and said, Most blessed are you among women, and blessed the fruit of your womb. And how does this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For at the moment the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the infant left in my womb for joy. Blessed are you who believe that what was spoken to you by the Lord would be fulfilled. The Canticle of Mary. One second. The Canticle of Mary. My soul claims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon his handmaid's lowliness. Behold, from now on will all ages call me blessed. The Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is from age to age to those who fear him. He has shown might with his arm, dispersed the ignorant arrogance of mind and heart. He has thrown down the rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the lowly. The hungry he has filled with good things, the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped Israel, his servant, remembering his mercy, according to his promise to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. The birth of John. When the time arrived for Elizabeth to have her child, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy toward her, and they rejoiced with her. 
When they came on the eighth day to circumcise the child, they were going to call him Zechariah after his father. But the mother said in reply, No, he will be called John. But they answered her, There is no one among your relatives who has this name. They made signs asking his father what he wished for him to be called. He asked for a tablet and wrote, John is his name. Then all were amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue freed, and he spoke, blessing God. Then fear came upon all their neighbors, and all these matters were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard th these things took them to heart, saying, What then will this child be? For surely the hand of the Lord was with him. The Canticle of Zechariah Then Zechariah, his father, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and brought redemption to his people. He has raised up a horn for our salvation within the house of David, his servant, even as he promised through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to be mindful of his holy covenant and of the oath he swore to Abraham our father and to grant us rescued from the hand of the enemies of enemies without fear we might worship him in holiness and righteousness before him all our days and you child will be called prophet of the most high for you will go before the lord to prepare his ways to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our god by which the daybreak from high from on high will visit us to shine on those who sit in darkness and death's shadow to guide our feet into the path of peace the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the desert until the day of his manifestation to israel so to start highlighting some points we have here um this announcement um to Mary, right? Um, the announcement to Mary, the birth of Jesus. Obviously, it's, a, it's this parallel to the announcement to Zechariah um, of the birth of John, right? So, in both, the angel Gabriel appears to the parent who's troubled by the vision, right? Then told by the angel not to fear. And it's kind of funny if you know how angels look, right? Um, how can I not be afraid, right? So, after the announcement is made, um, the parent gets objects right and the sign is given to confirm the announcement now, the particular focus of the announcement of the birth of jesus is on his identity as a son of david right son of god so going further we have um that the sign given to mary in confirmation of the angel's announcement to her is the pregnancy of her um cousin elizabeth right so if a woman past the childbearing age be could become pregnant why, the angel implied, should it be, should there be any doubt about Mary's pregnancy, right? We see this, for nothing will be impossible for God. Very important. Another thing I want to um, emphasize is like, like the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel opens with this infancy narrative, right? I wanted to say this first. Um, so this is obviously a collection of stories about the birth and childhood of Jesus. 
And this narrative uses early Christian traditions about the birth of Jesus, such as the canticles of the Magnificat and Benedictus, we saw. These are composed of phrases drawn from the Greek Old Testament. It is largely a composition of Luke who writes in imitation of the Old Testament birth stories, just combining these historical and legendary details as literary ornamentation and interpretation of scripture and an answer to advance the question who is jesus right so the focus of the narrative is primary christological so in this section luke announces many of the themes that will become prominent in the rest of this gospel right so the themes of the centrality of jerusalem and the temple the journey motif the universality of salvation joy and peace concern for the lowly the importance of women the presentation of Jesus as Savior, spirit-guided revelation and prophecy, and the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, right? So, these, uh, the account presents a parallel scenes of angelic announcements that I just mentioned, of obviously the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus, and the birth and circumcision and presentation of John and Jesus, right? So, in this parallelism, the ascendancy of jesus over john is stressed right so john is a prophet of the most high jesus is son of the most high john is great in the sight of the lord and jesus will be great right so this is the attribute used absolutely of god and john will go before the lord and jesus will be lord right so we see those parallels there moving forward we have um that although although that uh, Mary is being praised for being the mother of the Lord and because of her belief, she reacts as a servant in a psalm of praise, the Magnificat, as we read, right? There is no specific connection of the canticle to the context of Mary's pregnancy and her visit to Elizabeth. The Magnificat may have been a Jewish Christian hymn that Luke found appropriate at this point in his story, right? So, even if not composed by Luke, this Magnificat, the Canticle of Mary, it fits well with the themes found elsewhere in Luke um, that will see this joy and exaltation of the Lord, right? Um, and the lowly being singled out for God's favor, the reversal of human fortunes, you know, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. So, here is a loose connection between the hymn and the context um, is actually further seen in the fact that old Latin manuscripts identify the speaker of the hymn as Elizabeth, even though the overwhelming textual evidence makes Mary the speaker. Very interesting thing. Then we have the birth and circumcision of John. And um, it, above all, it emphasizes John's incorporation in to the people of Israel by the sign of the covenant. So the narrative of John's circumcision also prepares a way for the subsequent description of the circumcision of Jesus, right? So at the beginning, um, Luke shows those who play crucial roles in the inauguration of Christianity to be wholly part of the people of Israel. Do we actually see in the end of Acts of the Apostles, he will argue that Christianity is the direct descendant of Persiatic Judaism, and we know that um, 
Christianity, Catholicism is the fulfillment of Judaism. Right. So going further, um, like the canonical of Mary, the canonical of Zechariah is only loosely connected with its context. So apart from Luke, from Luke um, that we saw here, the hymn is speaking of a horn of our salvation. We see verse 69, right? And the daybreak from on high, verse 78. It applies more closely to Jesus and his work um, than to John, actually. And again, like Mary's canticle, it's largely composed of phrases taken from the Greek Old Testament. It may have been a, Christian, a Jewish Christian hymn of praise that Luke adapted to fit the present context by inserting um, here verses 76 and 77 to give Zechariah's replies to the question asked in um, verse 66 right all who heard these things took them to heart saying what then will this child be for surely the hand of the Lord was with him so we see 76 and 77. When you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Right? And we know that um, John the Baptist is going before the Lord and he's baptizing people. And that's what we'll see. Right? Very interesting there. So, um... That's pretty much all of that for uh, Luke. Do we have any questions? Ending just a little bit early. Um, any questions? Qu concerns? Anything? Any? Anything stand out to anyone? Um, I'm reading what Jimena said. Oh, wow, that's awesome. That's a lot of highlighting. That's awesome. Oh, yes, yeah, Maxwell, other Gospels um, from Mary and Judas, but they're considered apocryphal and borderline Gnostic. Yeah, um, there's, there's a lot like that. Very interesting. All right, well, if any more questions come up, but um, here we go.